0: God created this world. He created it good and beautiful and full of life. And he made us humans. He made us the high point of his creation. And he gave us the ability and the responsibility to steward creation. Now what I mean by steward is to not just manage it, but to draw out of creation all of its potential. And not just the physical creation, but humans. To, for humans to become all that we can become. To lovingly care for this world and for one another. To love our creator and to walk with him in faithfulness in his creation. But somehow, some way, at some point, we rebelled against God and everything shattered. We shattered our relationship with God, with each other, with ourselves, with this world. And when we did this... Two imposters moved in death and evil, parasites, a cancer moved into God's good creation. And as you read the Bible, this tragic tale is told with remarkable skill over the last couple of months we've seen how god set about to deal with this situation the god that created it and created it good and gave humans to the world as a gift and the world to humans as a gift over the last several months we've seen that god determined that the death and the evil would not be the end of the story that he was going to step in and deal with this he was going to deal with evil he was going to deal with death and that's the bible the bible is the story of how god is dealing with evil and death, how he's making all things new, how the world as we know it now is not and will not be the end of the story. That's the Bible in a nutshell. Now, what we've seen over the past few months is that God took a fancy for no apparent reason to an old dude from Babylon and his barren wife. And for some reason, he just loved them. And he said, okay, I'm going to use you to fix this whole thing. And he, de- and he decided to turn this old barren couple into a fecund family, a fruitful, flourishing community that would show the difference it would make if you had God as a part of your life. And God made a promise to old Abraham and Sarah and their offspring that no matter what happened, he would be radically committed to them and, and to his plan to make all things new. Throughout the fall, we've read and listened to this amazing story of God and Abraham. And now we're in this season of Advent. And today is the second Sunday of Advent. And we've jumped forward nearly 1,500 years in the story. A lot has gone on between what we were dealing with over the fall in the life of Abraham and the passages we're reading these weeks out of Isaiah. 1,500 years of the story have played out. And by the time of Isaiah... Abraham's people, his offspring, the people of Israel, the Jews, for centuries they had been rebelling, resisting God's love, refusing to walk in his ways, refusing to be the solution, refusing to cooperate with God who had chosen them for the renewal of all things. But instead they were steadfastly being a part of the problem. For centuries, Israel had been acting like that person who's having an affair, but wants it both ways. Wants to keep the outward form of the marriage and the lover. So instead of leaving either the lover or the spouse, Israel just keeps both on a string for as long as they'll remain. This is what Israel's been doing with God. And like a woman who is finally tired of her husband's philandering, God gets out the marriage contract and he tears it up because morally that is what the people of Israel had been doing. The relationship is dead. So God left Israel to the consequences of her sin. And what this looked like on a, on a practical Political and national level is that on March the 15th in the year 587 BC the Babylonian army conquered and raised the city of Jerusalem. And as a result the king of Israel the king of Jerusalem he fled like kings tend to do when their cities get conquered but the Babylonians chased him and they caught him and they killed his two sons right in front of him and then gouged out his eyes so that the last thing he saw in life was the death of his sons. And then they killed the king. They hauled off thousands upon thousands of the inhabitants of Israel, Jerusalem, to be captives in their own capital city of Babylon. This is the source Of Israel's pain. This is where they are in these passages that we've been reading. Israel risked everything to live its own way and lost everything. It risked its relationship with God for the sake of its other lovers. But then it found itself thrown out and discovered that all of those lovers abandoned her too. And here we are in Isaiah chapter 40. Our passage for this morning. And Israel has been utterly devastated. The the story I told you about Babylon invading. That was 50 years ago. 50 years of utter devastation. 50 years of living in ruins. 50 years Jerusalem has been a waste. And so they are hopeless if you want to know what they're thinking right now, read sometime, not now, the book of Lamentations. That's the account of what they're going through right now. And by the way, if you've never read it, the title gives you a, a hint. Lamentations. And it ends in utter despair. It doesn't even end on a hopeful note. It's, it's catastrophic. Israel is hopeless. They feel hopeless. They are a people, 50 years, think about that, 50 years of living in a, in a Chernobyl, right? 50 years of a barren wasteland. 50. I mean, some people were born and died, and it never changed. Some people saw it in their childhood, and they are on their deathbeds, and it's been utterly the same. Barren, wasteful, abandoned by God, hopeless, it's like the scene in *The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe* where tumnus tells the children that in Narnia, for nearly a hundred years, what anybody know, always winter, never Christmas. Always winter, never Christmas. Now, what about you? Have you forgotten how to hope? Are you tired? Are you in pain? Are you suffering? Has it been going on so long that it's been too long? Always winter, never Christmas. Is that what your life feels like? If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah 40 and hear the words of God to his people that have forgotten how to hope. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly. Literally in Hebrew, speak to the heart. I've been thinking all week as a dad. That's a beautiful way of saying what I need to do with my kids, right? I've got to find ways of speaking to their heart with tenderness. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her. That her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This morning God speaks to us in our own lives, in our own preparation for Christmas, our own preparation to celebrate the birth of Christ and God's great work in this world. And in our own preparation, let us hear hope for those who have forgotten how to hope. And so for the next few minutes, as we listen together for God's address through Scripture, I think it's going to help us to organize our listening around five ways that God is comforting the hopeless. So I don't always give you nice, handy little outlines. For those who are frustrated, here's my gift to you. Five ways he's helping us to learn again how to hope. Do you feel like you're with the Baptist again? Well, it'd be three, but but we're going to stretch it to five just to be crazy. All right. First of all, in these words, Israel is being reminded in her hopelessness of the reality of God. The first piece of good news for, for the shattered Israelites in this passage is that God is real. You would forget that, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you forget that? Haven't you ever forgotten that? I mean, none of us have ever lived through 50 years of a national catastrophe. But some of us have lived through two weeks of a catastrophe or two decades of it. And doesn't it get very easy to forget the reality of God? And Israel is being told here, God is not a figment of your imagination. And I want to say to you the same. We're not playing games here. We're not faking it. This isn't just some big charade in mass hysteria. God is real. And when you are hopeless, you need to remember the reality of God. The God of whom Isaiah spoke was the independent tumultuous, unpredictable awesome, caring, active lively, speaking loyal, consistent humorous God of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Miriam and Moses and Joshua and Rahab and Deborah and Hannah and Samuel and Saul and David. Real people a real God has been at work in a real history there is a reality. This God exists. He has been involved in the lives of his people. We live in a moment where this is hard to believe. It is hard to believe in God for so many people. And I hope you know that there are many people in this room who believe in the face of their doubts. And there are people in this room who doubt more than they believe. It is hard right now. In the reigning plausibility structure of this society, it is so hard to believe in God for so many people. Have you ever found yourself in the middle of a worship service or prayer time and suddenly ask yourself, What in the world am I doing? Is this a game? Or we just found a way to kind of reinforce middle class stability. Isaiah is reminding God's people of the reality of God. Now, on the one hand, they were living in a very different world than ours. Their world was full of gods. And their big challenge was which god. But ours is different. It's not about which god. It's about is there a god. But fundamentally, it's the same issue. It's a crisis of the reality of this god, Yahweh. It was just as hard for them to believe. Look, the hardness of belief is not new. That's what Isaiah is saying to Israel in this moment. The first thing he's doing is reminding them of the the great reality that there is a God. And this God is Yahweh, the God revealed in Scripture. They're reminded of who God is, and they're invited to stake their lives on the reality of God. And I want to say to those of you for whom it is hard to believe, you can stake your life on this. You can. Do it. Stake your life on the gamble that not only there is a God, but it is the God we are exalting in our worship. That he is the greatest reality. Stake your in moments of utter hopelessness. If all you can muster is a fingernails bit of grip of faith, do it and hang by your fingernails with all of your life. If you're suffering, stake your life on that reality believe believe in this God in the face of whatever shaky consensus on meaning and reality rules in our culture today because mighty empires have risen and fallen before and you've got to know it is very possible that the reigning plausibility structure of our day and age is wrong we have got to aim the guns of our suspicion not only at the certainties of faith but at the deep Suspicions of doubt. Be as suspicious of your doubt as you are of God. Don't just assume that suspicion can only be aimed at the certainties. Aim it at the doubts too. Doubt your doubts. Investigate your doubts. Hang on by your fingernails. For those of you who are hopeless, I'm begging you. Hang on. Muster whatever little ground of you can stand on. And stake everything on that belief. Listen again to Isaiah 40 verse 1. Comfort, comfort, my people says your God. My people. Your God. These may sound obvious trite words. But they are not. In the enormous void. Between Isaiah 39 and Isaiah 40. In that Enormous chasm. God had said in the book of Hosea. You are not my people. I am not your God. He had torn the marriage contract. He said centuries and centuries of this. Enough. And now he invites them once again. To remember there is a greater reality. Than the wrath of God. And it is the mercy of God. That mercy is at the heart of God. Yes, wrath is there. Absolutely. You cannot read the Old or the New Testament without seeing that. But at the heart of God is mercy. Remember for centuries, Israel's relationship with God has been under huge threat. Under monumental strain. And sometimes it was because of things they had done. And sometimes it was because of things they hadn't done like in the book of job when their relationship with god is shattered and it's not because of anything they've done they took issue with god and they brought that look if there if there is an enormous desert in your life and you know it's for no reason of your own take that to god but this is not that moment israel knows that this moment is her own making there is no arguing in fact, that phrase, you've received double for all your sins, very tricky to translate. Most people, including myself, um, it, it, literally it means folded in half. And it goes back to some passages in Leviticus. And what it's saying is that the punishment exactly equals the crime. So doubled up, you know how we can say double that as a kind of, we can use that in a way of folding something in half, double that up or something. The, the euphemism doesn't quite translate. But in the larger picture here, it's, in the larger story of Isaiah, there is never any sense of you've done too much. So when we read this in its whole context, what, what God is saying is, okay, you've been disciplined and it's enough. What they were going through, they knew it was entirely their fault. And here is God speaking into their terrifying circumstances and saying it's over. I am still your father. Look, I've been struck last week, the the passage that I preached on. I've been struck that at the center of Advent is our tremendous uh, privilege of crying out, Father, Dad. And here is God saying, I am still your father. Our relationship still exists. When you are in seasons of hopelessness, you've got to remember your relationship with God is real. Even if you can't see it, even if you don't feel it, even if you doubt it more than you believe it, you need to remember not only the reality of God, you not only need to remind yourself of the reality of God, but remind yourself that your relationship with God is real. Here is God saying, I still love you. I know it feels like I don't. I know that there is, when you look around, all your senses are telling you is that I don't. But I do. The moment for mercy has arrived. God knows when enough is enough. Isn't that comforting? He knows when enough, he does. And you know what? Just think of yourself like your child. Your child doesn't think you know when enough is enough. Could it be that the gap between you and God is even greater than the gap between you and your child? Could it be that the gap between your knowledge of what enough is, is even bigger than the gap between your three-year-old's knowledge of what enough is? Can we humble ourselves and say that the gap from us to God is enormous? And it could be that in all of our sophistication, he knows when enough is enough. The term has been served. The penalty has been paid. The sins have been completely punished. You can bet your life on the reality of God and on the reality of having a relationship with him. Now, some of you don't have a relationship with God. But for those of you who do, you can bet your life on it. Remember his love for you. Remember that he is your father. Turn to him. Call out to him as a child does to their father. Depend on that relationship. For the third way to hope again. Let's look at verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level." and the rough places of plain and the glory of the lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the lord has spoken here we see that is that god is calling israel to prepare you see israel's judgment and defeat were signs of god clearing away the brush and the dry rot that was keeping god away What about you? Can you see this in your own life? Are you sitting in the consequences of your sin? Can you see how those consequences are the ways that God is working to clear away the stuff that keeps him away? You see, sometimes God begs us to get rid of it and we don't. And so the way he gets rid of it is he pulls it back and lets us experience that. It is a right thing to be terrified of God. He is not a toy. He is not our pet. He will turn us over to the consequences of our rebellion. And you should fear that. In the same way that a healthy child's relationship with a parent fears consequences. Not in any way that discounts love. You know, making fear and love exactly opposite in this scenario is not quite the right move we need to make. See, I think there's a chance that some of us are sitting in deserts of our own making. And in those moments... We need to deal with that. And the way we deal with that is that we repent. In seasons of hopelessness, we must remember to repent. To examine our lives. Now, I've already said there are seasons of despair that are not of our making. There is this thing called the dark night of the soul. And sometimes it is all of God's making and none of ours. And there's a place of that in spiritual formation. But before you're absolutely convinced that your dad is giving you discipline that you don't deserve, shouldn't you humbly consider if you do deserve it? And when you discover that you do, repent. Prepare the way for God's return. For this season of Advent, will you prepare your life to receive Christ? For some of you, for the very first time, will you repent and invite the Creator to forgive you of your sins? And will you open the the deep places of your life and invite Him in and utterly rely on Him? For some of you, you've already done that. But maybe you're in a place where you've let stuff get in the way. And it is grievous. And it is wicked. And you should repent. You can stake your life on God's responsiveness to repentance. You can. God responds to repentance. You can stake your life on that. For the fourth way to hope again, let's look at the next section, verses 6, 7, and 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. Now, by the way, I just read it in a way that I tried to change your translation. If in your Bible, it's got quotation marks around what shall I cry? Erase or scribble out the, the closing quotation marks. I, they, they really need to be at the end of verse 7. And let, let me explain what I'm saying. See, God says to the prophet, cry out to the people. And, and here's the message of, of, of hope. And he says, How can they even hear that? They're dead. You have blown on them and withered them. Remember last week talking about the withering effects of sin? This week we see, oh, I, you know, in Hebrew, the word ruach. It can be translated breath, wind or spirit and in Greek, both in the Old and New Testament. Anytime you read the word breath, wind or spirit, it's one word that could go any way. And sometimes it's used and it means mean, it, mean it tries to play all of them off of each other. So there's this beautiful metaphor going on here, right? Where the prophet says back to God, cry out, you have destroyed them. You have breathed out judgment on them, and like grass under a scorching wind, like, like corn at the end of a long, 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 long dry spell, there's nothing to say. You've destroyed them. That's one thing that's going on in the passage. Another thing that's going on is he's saying people are like grass. They're fickle. There's another word play going on. If you know Hebrew, the word hesed, one of the best words in the Old Testament. It means faithfulness. Here's a, here's a kind of a tricky form of it. And it doesn't mean faithfulness. It means instability. In cons, in, they're, not, they're not constant. All people are like grass. They kind of, one minute they love God and the next minute they don't. They're, they're faithful one minute. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, not people in this room, obviously. So he's saying, look, on the first hand, why even talk to them? They're going to love you one minute, not love you the next. And on the other hand, he's using kind of this wordplay, they're utterly destroyed. There's nobody to even talk to. They're dead. They're utterly hopeless. And verse 8 is the response. You're right. The grass withers and the flower fades, but you've forgotten a greater reality. You've forgotten That I'm not afraid of death. And that when I speak. Even the dead can listen. So what about you? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been completely done? Undone by your own self? Undone by the judgment of God? Have you ever been utterly shattered? The prophet forgot. The difference it makes when God decides to do a new thing. God said way back that he would not simply abandon Israel forever. And God is saying that now the moment of comfort has come. Prophet says too late. God says, wait a minute. I said the moment would come. There is no too late. When I say something, you can count on it. In contrast. To our fickleness and our failures and even our death. There is a bigger reality. The word of God stands forever. You can stake your life on God's word. It's cheesy. It's a bumper sticker that I wouldn't put on my car. But God said it. I believe it. And it really does settle everything. Now, if you put it on your car that I'm just I'm judging myself not you. How can we be how can we have hope? How can we remember to hope? Remember the reality of God, remember the relationship, remember that repentance brings forgiveness and we can remember that all of God's promises are yes and amen. So when you are in seasons of hopelessness, learn to read the Bible and have the courage to believe that this is God's word and it is utterly trustworthy it is this is not a classic it's God's word god said these things to us and it's not an it's not a Inscription of what God did say, it's what God is saying. This is a present word. How can we be sure we have a future and a hope? We can be sure because God's word says so. When you're hopeless, learn to read the Bible and have the courage to believe a book that many people will make fun of you for believing. Just own up to your dorkiness. Just own up to the fact that you're out of step, that you will not get street cred or academic cred. Just say, I believe it. And stand on it. Bet your life on it. And I'm telling you, your bet will play out. Your hand will win. For the fifth re- way to hope again, let's look at verse 9 through 11. Get you up to a mountain. Here I'm going to change another translation. Um, Herald of good news to Zion. Some of you, if you have the RSB, it, translate it that way. Some others. It's very tricky. It, it, it's not different words. It's just what... What case of the words, um, so get you up to a high mountain, Zion is the herald, or be a herald to Zion. Get you up to a high mountain, herald of good news, to Zion. So he's, he's telling a messenger, get up on a high mountain, and I want you to give a message to Zion. Then the next one, lift up your voice with strength, O herald of good news, to Jerusalem. Highly debated, it. Either way, it doesn't contradict anything in the Bible. But I'm convinced, based on the grammar, based on the context of the book, that the messenger is speaking to Israel. By the way, it goes it's it's almost the exact same phrase as, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, which is good news to Zion in, in Isaiah 52. It's almost the same thing. So the message is coming to Zion. And what is the message? It's the message we've been hearing about. This people that are utterly hopeless. God is speaking to the prophet and saying, go speak this message to them. Here is God returning to the city he left. You see, can you see the image? Messenger, get up on the highest point so you can see him coming back. Coming back down which road? The road you just prepared. You prepared a way. Get up there so you can see him as soon as he crests the horizon. And then you can turn and say to the cities of Judea that surround Israel, Zion. And you can then say to them first, because they'll see him first. And then you can move into Jerusalem itself. And you can say, behold, in other words, look that way. He's coming. And look who he is that's coming. Oh, it's this powerful. Tender. Shepherd king. Gathering. And protecting. Carrying with power and compassion. I love the imagery. The ruling arm in verse 10. Is the carrying arm in verse 11. The strong one in verse 10. Is a shepherd in verse 11. There's this combination of. Of triumphant might and tender compassion. I love in verse 11 how it says he will carry them in his bosom. Literally close to his heart. Isn't that a beautiful bookend to verse 1? Speak to their hearts. And now he says I'll pull you to my heart. Speak to their heart was this way of saying be tender with them. And so now what is he doing with them? He's bringing them into the tender part of his life. And sure enough, on October the 7th, 539 B.C., the armies of Persia conquered Babylon. And then on October 29th, Cyrus himself, if you've seen 300 A.D., which I'm not endorsing. The king of Persia entered Babylon and released the Jewish captives and sent them back home. And they rebuilt their temple. In other words. God said it. And it happened. They returned home. They eventually rebuilt Jerusalem. It really did happen. Everything God said here. Really really did happen. In history. And then 500 years later. In our reading from Mark. Mark, John the Baptist steps into the wilderness and says oh you just thought last time was cool wait till you see what he's going to do this time and then John the Baptist said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world And God fulfilled this passage in a way that nobody saw coming. Shocked everybody. It's sort of like what's happening in Elkton right now. This church we're planning in Elkton, it's a brand new thing. But it's also some people's longest dreams. It's both new and old. It's the fulfillment of long dreams. And it caught us off guard. That's what happened with John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ. In your own exile and failure and suffering. It can seem that the only realities are the sad realities that overwhelm us. And we can lose sight of the fact that God and God's purposes are the greatest realities. They are the ultimate realities. And in those times when God is inactive and your life is a desert these are the times when it is most important to hold on to the reality of God and to remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Remember that he really did come. He really did die for us. He really did rise from the dead. Remember that. In your utter despair, grab a hold of that, and if all you can grab it with is your fingernails, if if, if you've got 99% doubt and 1% you can muster up some sort of maybe believing in that, just do that. And this is hard. And you know what? We're just like the prophet, aren't we? As soon as God, as soon as we get near to this compassion, as soon as we get near to this hope, doesn't a battle start out with you just like it did with the prophet? No, wait a minute, God. Wait a minute. I mean, look at all these reasons. As soon as God begins to speak these fresh words into our life, you know what happens? A battle starts. It started in the prophet. That's why verses um, 6 to 8 are sandwiched right in between verses 3 to 5 and 9 to 11. Right in between these tremendous promises is the prophet saying, but wait, but wait, but wait. And doesn't the same thing happen in you? As soon as you get near to belief, doesn't a whole battle break loose in your life? It gets so difficult. I think about Scott and Aaron. Day after day, they're fighting for the most vulnerable in our community. And you know what? When an individual rises up against a system, the system wins. When I have lunch with Scott and Aaron, it can be utterly despairing when they tell me the stories. (laughs) Do you know that our city is about to build a jail that's going to cost $10 million more a year to run than the current one? And if they would give a million dollars a year to mental health issues, we could relieve the population of our jail potentially. We'd rather spend $10 million than a million smart dollars. And you know what? It's most likely going to happen. Have you ever felt the weight? I think of Mike Trainum, And he looks in the teeth of the international um, aid community that provides aid to developing countries. And it is utterly broken. And you know in the billions and billions of dollars that flow in aid toward developing countries. So much of it ends in the hands of the rich. In, in our town an architecture firm was asked to, to study if we needed a new jail. And if we did they got the contract. How is that good? How, how does that work right? And you can see enough of that stuff enough times that you become utterly helpless i think about those in our church who are struggling with depression you can see it enough times in your life and you can feel utterly helpless and you hear messages like this and all of that and you rises up and you push you push back and listen in these moments you have got to remember to fight you have to fight for belief go down if you must but go down swinging fight for belief and you need to know that the, that the sorrows we face in our own lives and in this world, they require an incredible act of victory. Jerusalem got a taste of it when Cyrus, amazing thing, when, right, when Assyria conquered Babylon and let captives go back home and rebuild their city. And then even more amazing than that, who would have ever thought it? The one and only God, took on flesh and died for us. I mean, who would ever dream that one up? Not took on flesh to rape us like Zeus did with the swan, right? Not took on flesh to play games with us, but took on flesh to die for us. Who would have written that story? And he promises us that he's not finished, that he will come again. That's what we heard in Second Peter 3. And so in these moments, when you are utterly hopeless, remember that the greater reality is that all shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. And how can you know that? Because he said it. And that's enough. He doesn't lie. His word is sure. And as unpopular as it is to believe that God can inspire a book. That's the reason we believe it. Jesus said, I'm coming back. And when I do, death shall be no more. And when I hold you next to my bosom, I will wipe every tear from your eye. Not only will I kick out evil and death, I'll remove even its residue. So when you feel this fight in you to resist hope, when, it's in the, when you feel the force of that battle in the very marrow of your bones, a battle must be fought in that moment. And you can base your confidence that there is a final purpose for this world. And the blues will be bluer. And the greens will be greener. And the lion will lay with the lamb. And those of you struggling with depression, no more. And those of us who've lost children will have them back. And those of us who have suffered for 50 years, it'll be wiped away. That's the ultimate reality. We can stake our lives on that. We can bet our lives on the reality of God and the relationship with God and the fruitfulness of repentance and the surety of his word and the mighty return of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.